gives to us. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter number 10 this morning. Exodus chapter number 10. I know it's been a time of vacation and a lot of things going on. But two weeks ago, we worked our way through the first seven plagues. And we, uh, we, if you're brand new with us, we've been working our way through Exodus for far too long, according to most people. Uh, just kidding. Uh, we've been working our way through Exodus, and we're, we're in the middle of the plagues right now. Two weeks ago, we worked our way through the first seven plagues, but our focus was primarily on the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. And what we saw two weeks ago is that there's actually two Hebrew words that are used to be translated into English as hardened. The first is kavod, which means heavy or weighty. And what we would see is through the first six plagues, it, it, it regularly the text would tell us that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh kavod his heart, meaning it was hard to move. He was very stubborn. Regardless of what he saw, the miracles that God was doing in front of him, he refused to acknowledge Yahweh as the one true God. But then after the sixth plague, we saw that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, which led us to ask this question. Does that mean that Yahweh took away Pharaoh's free will. Now did Pharaoh just do whatever Yahweh was telling him to do, and then he would be punished for that? That just seems strange. And what we saw was when the Bible tells us that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, we find the word, the Hebrew word hazak being used, meaning Yahweh was going to strengthen or encourage what was already in Pharaoh's heart. His heart was already hard. Yahweh was just forcing Strengthening that hardness because he had to get Pharaoh to a point of decision because it was time for Israel to leave And the question was was Pharaoh going to let them go because he had understood who Yahweh was And he was going to surrender them so they could go serve Yahweh or was Pharaoh going to resist and Yahweh would need to humble and cripple Pharaoh primarily in order to get uh, the people to leave and so we saw, I'm not going to read it, but just so you have it, we saw during the hailstorm of the seventh plague that the plagues had fulfilled their purpose. Pharaoh, this God king of Egypt, finally saw Yahweh for who he is, and he says, you are the God of justice. You are the one who determines right and wrong, and I and my people are on the wrong side of your justice. I have sinned and that was exactly the purpose of the plagues to get Yahweh to, or to, to get Pharaoh to recognize who Yahweh was But what we also saw was that at the end of the hailstorms when everything settled down Pharaoh once again hardened his heart Meaning he saw Yahweh for who he was and he said I don't care And at that point now we're going to see a shift. We're going to see a shift in the purpose of the plagues. The purpose of the plagues will no longer be to reveal Yahweh to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians because that has already been done and they have chosen to rebel. What we're going to see is a shift and Yahweh is going to reveal himself to his own people. I want to show you my power, my provision, my precision because you are going to need to follow me. As we leave so in chapter 10 verse number one, we're going to enter the eighth plague of the locusts 
chapter 10, verse number 1, says this. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know, that, here we go, that you may know that I am Again, two things have changed. One is very easy to see. The purpose has changed. Now I want you, Moses, I want you to see how great I am so that you will be able to tell generations to come who their God is. But there's other, other change that we can't tell in the English. This time, when it says Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, we're using the other Hebrew word. Yahweh is going to make Pharaoh's heart more stubborn. Which then leads us back to this question that we asked two weeks ago. Is Yahweh taking away Pharaoh's free will when he hardens his heart, and then he's only going to punish him for doing what he's making him do? And doesn't that seem so unfair, right? Here's what I want to show you. I, I think the text is going to reveal that Yahweh is not going to supernaturally harden Pharaoh's heart, but rather, Yahweh is going to bring circumstances into Pharaoh's heart where he will harden his heart himself. But those circumstances, Yahweh is bringing. And here's the crazy thing. It's simple. He's going to bring two slaves in front of the king of the world and say, you need to bow to our God. <laughs> okay. How do you think that's going to go over for a God king? Got two slaves. Two slaves are going to tell me that, that I have to bow to their God. The thing is, they're going to say that in front of all of Pharaoh's servants. So what do you think Pharaoh himself is going to do when he's challenged like that by two slaves? Well, of course, he's going to harden his heart. Look at verse number three. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God of your slaves. How long will you refuse to humble yourself or to bow down before me? Let my people go that they may serve and the crazy thing is Moses and Aaron, they deliver this message and they say, you have a choice. You bow down before our God or you will face a famine when, it come, when the locusts come, when a plague of locusts come and they're going to eat everything that's left over after that bad hailstorm. And then Moses and Aaron don't wait for us, that they don't wait for an answer. They turn and walk away. How insulting. To the most powerful man in the world, he's going to turn and walk away. No, 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 that's not what we're going to do. But then what makes it even worse is in verse 7, Pharaoh's servants agree with Pharaoh's slaves. Look at verse 7. It says, Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man, meaning Moses, be a snare to us? Let them go that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not yet understand well just pause right there we got two we got we got servants looking at the most powerful person in the world saying don't you get it what are you dumb 
Where's your head? Like you see the circumstances that Yahweh's finding himself, or that, that Pharaoh's finding himself in, because Yahweh sends two slaves, and he moves in the hearts of these servants to say, let them go. Egypt is ruined. Hey, Pharaoh, God King, it's over. You've lost. Man, that's not going to sit well with Pharaoh. He says, I absolutely will not bow before their God. And so the locusts come. See, Yahweh didn't take away Pharaoh's free will. But he purposely put him in a situation that would cause his rebellion to intensify, which means ultimately Pharaoh has no one to blame but himself. I thought through that. I'm like, man, how often do I find myself in the same situation? God gives me circumstances where I can humble myself and I can care for and serve others and serve him, but but I fail to, and then I want to point to God as the reason for my problems. When the truth is, the reason for my problems is my own pride. We often put the blame on God for our problems rather than seeing it's our pride and we, free, we refuse to admit our own mistakes and we want to hold everyone else in our life accountable for our problems. I, I remember a young man. He was, he was a little bit older than me. He, he had already been married for a few years in Bible college. He, and he was giving a testimony and as he was giving his testimony, it was, he was sharing about his family. And he was saying, my wife and I have been married for a few years. We have two children, and, and God's really blessing our marriage. And he said, but if you were to look at my brother, my brother has already experienced two divorces in his life. And he went on to say, but, but what is so amazing is is that both my brother and I point to the same reason that our lives have ended up so differently. He said, we grew, we grew up and my father left my mother when we were young children. And we grew up in a broken home. And he said, I've talked to my brother and my brother has said many times, well, you saw what happened in our house. How does anybody expect us to do anything different than what we saw? He said, but I grew up thinking, I saw that in my house. I don't want that for my children. And while one brother was using the excuse of saying, well, this is what happened to me, as his reason for his broken marriages, another brother was saying, well, this is what happened to me, as the reason why he's going to be committed to his wife and children, even through the difficult circumstances in life. And the, the truth is, you know, for all of us, as we work through difficult times in our lives, the road to reconciliation is so important. But if, if your first step on the road to reconciliation is to point a finger at someone else, I'm telling you, you're not on the road to reconciliation. You're on the road to further division. Because the road to reconciliation, the first step on that road is an honest admission of our own guilt. Like, all right, I may be responsible for 1%, but I'll own that 1%. 
We're, we're never, it doesn't matter whether it's a husband or wife, a parent or a child, it doesn't matter if it's a boss or an employee, if, if, it is, if it is always it's your fault, we're never going to find the restoration and the resolve that we desire. I mean, let's be honest, husbands, and I'm not trying to be funny, but I'm a little bit like, like how successful are we when we point out how our wife has failed us? How, how good does that dis- discussion go? Well, you know what you should have done. Yeah, that about you, but in my house, that doesn't really accomplish anything. Parent or children. How many times does your whining attitude to your dad about how how they're so unfair? How many times has that gotten them to change their mind? And what's the reality? Husbands, what if what if we went to our wives in a spirit of humility, asking for forgiveness for not providing a secure and loving relationship for her to find what she needs from her husband. I'm sorry, that's my fault. Somehow, found out. <laughs> I hope that's not our car. If you, have a, if you have an issue at work, how different would it be if you approached your boss instead of saying, this is, this is, this is the way it needs to be? What if you were to say, I, I know the pressures that you often feel? And, and I'm just thankful that you're able to provide us with a, provide our, our family with a job. Kids, what if you were to approach your mom and dad at some point and saying, I, I know I, I, I often fail to express my appreciation and my love for the way that you so care for us. But I just want to tell you, I'm grateful for who you are. Like, what if, what if that was our first step on a road to reconciliation? I think we'd get there a lot quicker and a lot easier. But a lot of times it's, it's that pride that's in our heart. In fact, for, for Pharaoh, it was this pride, and he said, absolutely not. So the locusts arrived. Look, look at verse number 12. It says, then, then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. Oh, here's a cool echo. The east wind. If I were to take you back to the book of Genesis, to a man named Joseph, who interprets the dream of an Egyptian pharaoh. He dreams of seven skinny cows eating seven fat cows and seven skinny ears of corn devouring seven full ears of corn. Are you you familiar with that? That was a dream that Joseph interpreted. You're going to have seven years of plenty followed by seven years of terrible famine. Guess what brought the seven years of terrible famine to Egypt in Genesis? Now we see an echo of the east wind bringing another famine through these locusts. But here's what's so cool. There's a forward echo because it's not just that the east wind brings in famine, but in just a short time, the Israelites are going to be standing on the bank of the Red Sea with nowhere to turn. And guess what God sends? An east wind. 
to part the waters, which is so amazing. Like, this blows my mind. Like, the, God works the same way in the world, but for some, it ends up in devastation. For others, it ends up in deliverance. And that just goes to remind me, it's not our circumstances that dictate the outcome of our lives. It's our reaction to our circumstances that do. I'm going to say something that's, that's not easy to say. We're all going to face death. There's someone that is close to you that will experience death and leave you feeling hurt and lost and alone and uncertain of what to do. I promise you, every single person in here is going to experience death and hurt and tragedy and sickness. You're not the only person that's going to feel like that, although sometimes you may feel very alone. I'll tell you, death entering into your life does not have to turn you bitter and sour. It does to some. Rejection or rebellion hurts some. We're all going to face difficult moments in our lives. It's not those difficult moments that are going to define the outcome. It is our reaction to those difficult moments. Aaron, I saw that this, this past week was the, uh, the anniversary, eighth anniversary, is that right? Eighth anniversary of the fire in your home. And, and you had shared the link, and I watched the, 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 the show again of you telling your story. And it, it's all about, like, we're all going to face loss. What do we do in that loss? Do we walk away saying, God, how could you do this to me? Or do we reach up and say, God, I've got to hang on to you because I have nothing else. That's what I would love to encourage us as a church family. When we face those unwanted circumstances, whether or not we trust in God will determine the outcome of those circumstances. Come on that unseen hand. As the narrative continues, there's this little glimpse of hope that, that Pharaoh, he might get it. Because when the, when, the, when the locusts arrive, he calls out for a second time. He says this for a second time. Look at it at verse number 16. It says, Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh. But notice the next words. Your God. And then he goes on and says, Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with Yahweh, your God, to remove this death from you. You know, I promise you, as soon as I, as soon as I read that, I thought, wow, that is a perfect illustration of what religion is. I want things to be right. Will somebody do that for me? Can I, can I go to somebody else? And, or maybe I can make amends by, by just doing more good. No, no, see, what religion wants to do is that it wants to allow you to confess your sins or, or, or make amends without facing the one against whom you have sinned. But relationship 
forces you to face the one you have hurt and take responsibility for your wrong. You see, that one word that Pharaoh uses, I have sinned against Yahweh, your God, means he doesn't have to face Yahweh himself. You, you go take it. And I would love to encourage you as a church. Have such a strong relationship with Jesus that you look at him as your God and your king and your savior and your Lord and make it so personal that when you sin, you sin immediately. And your first thought is not, oh, I've lied to this person, which is a sin against that person, but oh, I've lied. Jesus, I'm so sorry I've sinned against And Jesus worked so hard to give us a way to the Father. Right? Purpose, I am the way. God, no man comes to the Father except through me. And what Pharaoh was saying is, you go to God. And I'm so glad we don't have to go to a priest. I'm so glad we don't live in the Old Testament days where we would have to have someone offer sacrifices on our behalf. Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice, gives us the opportunity to go right to Yahweh himself. Verse 20 tells us that Pharaoh just hardens his heart, though, as soon as the locusts are driven away, which leads into the ninth plague, the ninth plague of darkness. Well, when we get into this darkness, again, we find these echoes, which is the theme of, of Exodus, right? The backwards echo of darkness well, were the first words of creation. Let there be. Until Yahweh called light into existence, there only was darkness. So we see the, 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 the decreation story, but I want you to think forward. In this plague of three days of darkness, what comes next? Death of the firstborn. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, we experience three hours of darkness across the entire world, and those three hours of darkness are followed by I don't mean firstborn as if he was created like the rest of us, but he is called the firstborn in position over all of us. It's amazing. We see what these plagues are showing us, the narrative of the entire Bible. In fact, there's, we've, we've gone through some patterns now of these first nine plagues. Plague nine completes a, another pattern. In plague seven... Yahweh said, you'll never, you've never seen locusts or lo, never seen hailstones like this before, and you'll never see them like this again. In plague 8, he said, you'll never seen locusts like this before, you'll never see locusts like this again. And in plague 9, he simply says, you'll never see. And take all of your sight away. Like what's in front of you, you will not be able to see. You will be blinded to what is right in front of you. And I thought, man, that is so often the way that I live my life. I get so busy. I get so wrapped up in me that I fail to see what is right in front of me. And we all do it. In fact, marriages implode because husband and wife sometimes fail to see the love of the person that, with whom they share a home. 
young adults foolish decision with their lives because they they fail to see the good home and good mom and dad that have been raising them and they look beyond to see what is so tempting over there blinded to what's right in front of them families run after the accolades and the pleasures of the world what they are missing is that they're teaching their children Serving God is more of an option than a calling. Pharaoh responds to the darkness. He says, just go. Just go. Even your kids lead cattle. And I would love to dig down deep in that, but I'm, I'm not going to. But, but Moses says, no, you don't, get to, you don't get to set the ground rules. Yahweh has already set the ground rules. We're not, going to, we're not going to do what you want to do. We're doing it the way God said. Pharaoh gets so upset that he says, the next time I see you, I will kill you. Exodus 10, 27. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. He would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to them, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again which leads us into the 10th and final plague against Egypt. And the focus is on one word. Firstborn. Firstborn. There's an echo, though, that we have to return to. It's early on, even before, even before Moses gets to Egypt, God tells him this in Exodus chapter 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, because his heart's going to be turned against you. You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I am firstborn son. This is before he gets there. So what we know is that everything is going to start and end focused on the firstborn. Look at chapter 11, if you would. Chapter 11, verse number 4. So Moses said, thus says Yahweh, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh's going to get this warning, but he's, his heart is hardened and he is set. And, and today I'm not going to focus on the Passover, the Passover lamb and all of that. We're going to focus on just why the firstborn. The Hebrew word for first, firstborn is bekor. And here's what you'll find. The firstborn or the bekor is destined to become the family representative. The firstborn receives the father's blessing. He also receives a double inheritance. Because it's through the firstborn that the family legacy continues. He will be the one who will represent the father when the father is absent, whether it's a temporary absent, maybe taking care of something, or whether it's a permanent absence in death. Okay, but this becomes huge. You can't miss what I'm about to say. 
Firstborn, though, not about position. It's about mission. See, the firstborn is not more important than the rest of the family. I could prove it. Abraham is the first one God chooses for the nation of Israel. He's not the passed on from Abraham to Isaac, and Isaac's not Abraham's firstborn. Passed on from Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob is not Isaac's firstborn. Passed on from Jacob to Joseph, and Joseph is not the firstborn. And now we're talking about the man that God has chosen to lead his people out of Israel named Moses. Moses is not the firstborn in his family. His older brother Aaron is. Being the firstborn is not about having this position. Being the firstborn about the mission because it is through the bikor that the values, the morals and the lifestyle of a family are displayed to and this is important to their world let me give you this example a parent and a child have two different worlds in which they live they're going to have different friends They're going to face different circumstances. They're going to make different decisions. But even in these different worlds, they can both adopt the same values, the same morals, the same attitudes, and have the same mission. A parent may go to an office while a child may may go to school. But if this family is a generous, hardworking family, kind-hearted, selfless family, those values will come up in both worlds. Mom and dad might be generous in the office by buying lunch, while son or daughter might be generous in their world by sharing their toys. Mom and dad might, might give credit to the co-workers in a selfless way, while son or daughter might give credit to teammates for their successes. Parents may work really hard to to make sure that their company is successful while a child works very hard to get good grades. It's the values are the same even though they live in different worlds. This is so true because you could ask any coach. I mean, Coach Huff, I know you would know this. Amy, you would know this. Stevie, you know this. Carrie, all of you who have coached, right? The child is often a microcosm of the family in which they're raised. The way they react to receiving instructions. Their attitude when they're told to to do something hard, like run five laps instead of the one that they normally would. The actions when they don't get their way and they don't get to play the way that they want to play, how much they want to play. So often you get to see the reactions of the child because you're finding the values not just of the child, you're finding the values of the home. Because these children, your children, are representatives to their world of your values. So now you understand when God says, Israel is my Bekor. What he's saying is, I have chosen Israel to go into their world 
to show the values of their father in a different world. So all of a sudden we come and realize, oh, wait, so it's, it's not just that Israel is this really special group of people that, that God just randomly chose. No, he chose a group of people to represent him in a world in which he is not seen. We all, as parents, want well-behaved, thoughtful, generous kids, right? But we also know that doesn't happen by accident. You can't put your kid in front of a screen all day long and expect them to know how to share. You can't let the world raise your children and then expect them to have the same values that you do. I still remember reading this book before Troy was born. I don't even know what the name of the book is. I don't remember anything about it, but I remember coming across this statement. Don't expect your children to know what you never teach them. Like there's this, I think there's this assumption by many parents that, well, my kids will just watch me and get it. No, I'm just telling you, no, they won't. There's a lot of things that they can get from you, but they need you to teach them. I remember going to camp as a youth pastor. I would sit down in my cabin every single at the beginning of every week, and I would say, let me tell you how we're going to go to bed. I didn't used to do this. We used to go to camp, and then it was, it was so frustrating to me because, like, all those kids, would, would, they would stay, make all kinds of bodily noises and, and stay up and throw stuff. And, you know, once everybody's close to going to bed, somebody's going to scream and yell. And boy, it, was just, it was just a fight. And I started to tell them, hey, here's how we're going to go to bed. All right? I'm going to warn you when I'm going to turn the lights off. After we turn the lights off, you're going to have 10 minutes to act as foolish as you want. But I'm going to keep warning you when those 10 minutes are done. When those 10 minutes are done, you're going to get one chance to say goodnight to everybody in whatever voice you want to. After that, we're done. You know, it's amazing how they responded to their expectations being told to them. I'm not saying it was perfect. You know, we're talking about teenage boys, right? But it was so different than when I just said, hey, it's time to go to bed. Turn the lights off. Everybody be quiet. That just didn't work very well. You know, moms and, and dads, can I just really, I would love to encourage you. Learn from others. Sit down with successful parents. Ask them what you think is important for them to teach their children. And then start taking the time to teach it. I remember when, when Troy and Trevor were, in, were very young, like five and four. And I had written this this down on a piece of paper and three by five card and I came across it and when my boys were starting to grow and I said I want to write down ten things that I want to teach my boys and I wrote down on a three by five card ten things I wanted Trevor and uh, Troy and Trevor to know I have that I could tell you right where that card is I take it out every once in a while and look at it to see are my boys learning the values that I believe are important for a young man to know. I just think it's so important for us to be able to teach children. They want to know, and here's why. If Israel was called to be the Bekor of Yahweh, they have to know how Yahweh thinks. They have to know his heart. They have to know who he is. 
So when he pulls them out of Egypt, if you could think forward with me, when he pulls them out of Egypt, what does he do with them? very first thing he does sits them down and says, I have ten words that I want to share with you. We call them ten commandments. Because he is already through the plagues, he has been revealing himself. He's been revealing himself as powerful. He's going to get them up to the, to the Red Sea, and he's going to show them, I'm your protector. They're going to get across the Red Sea. They're going to need men. And water and he's going to show i am your provider but that still doesn't show the essence of who yahweh is as a holy god so he is going to tell them these are 10 commands that i want you to follow and beyond that let me tell you about a priest and about a tabernacle which is fills up much of exodus the instructions of a tabernacle and these priestly duties. And then all of Leviticus is filled with, this is how you are to live as my bettors. Because you're going to a world where they don't know me. So you must represent me well. Because Yahweh had a world of people had to reach. But he needed his bekor. Which is why he said to Pharaoh, if you don't let my bekor go, I will take yours from you. Because you need your bekor to teach your people the power of the Pharaoh. And if you won't let me take my people to show the world, I won't let the world see yours. See, there's this, there's this question, like Pharaoh has recognized Yahweh as a divine power. He has even recognized Yahweh as the one who rules and reigns with justice. Because he said twice, I have sinned. Which then leads me to this question, is, is Pharaoh kind of a part of Yahweh's family? How do you know? How do you know who's in whose family? And Yahweh goes on to prepare a way for everyone in Egypt to display whose side are you on. They were to take animals, animals that were considered deities in Egypt, and they were to tie those animals up in plain sight for all of the Egyptians to see, we are tying up your gods, and in four days we will slaughter them, and we will paint our Doorposts with the blood of your gods. See, painting the doorposts with blood was a purposeful act of rebellion against the gods of Egypt and a purposeful act of allegiance to Yahweh. It was like as every father went and painted the doorposts of his home, what he was saying is, Outside of this home, we may live in Egypt. Inside of this home is Yahweh's. Oh, moms and dads, that's what we need. We live in a world that we see is going. The morals of this world are going and going and going, but it doesn't have to happen inside of our home. Inside of our home, we remind our children that we today, because of what Jesus has done, 
done. Because Israel, if you follow their history, they fail to be the Bekor. They don't get into the land of Canaan and show the goodness of Yahweh. They start living for themselves. They start living in, with injustice. They start taking from people, and they start turning their hearts to the other gods in a new land. And they fail to be the Bekor that, it, that Yahweh had asked them to be. And so what is Yahweh left there's no one here to teach my world who I am. That for my son. And Jesus becomes the true Bekor, who lives out a life and teaches the words of his father to a world around him. And what happens? Kill him for it. No one wants to hear they're failing to live out the missions and values of God. But in being killed and rising again and showing who he truly is, Jesus now provides an invitation to all of the world to say, you can be a part of this kingdom. The kingdom of of Yahweh, the kingdom of Jesus, because both are the I am, right? So come on, be a part of this kingdom. And how do we become a part of this kingdom? Well, we take the blood of a perfect lamb. We paint it across our lives and we say, I allegiance. And we live it out and we speak it out. And, and, and Yahweh doesn't leave us just to say, you'll figure it out on your own. No, no, we have the example of Jesus. We have the words of the Father and we have the presence of the Spirit of God within us. And all of those together are allowing us to live out the values and the characters that we know our God has. Simple question is, is that how we're living? Are we reflecting the values of our Heavenly Father or are we living out the values far below what He desires? Close with this. I don't believe it is enough to passively acknowledge our position as a child of God. Meaning, I don't feel like it's enough. I don't believe what God has called us to do is simply to say, I'm a child of God. Action. Actively strive to fulfill our mission with God. And while we do, we show others the pathway to join the family of God. Because here's what's so cool about your God. It wasn't just Israel that he invited to follow him and paint the doorpost. Anyone in the land of Egypt could do so. And I think it's verse 37 or verse 38 tells us that there were people other than the Israelites said, we've seen it. We'll follow him. We're not Jews. We're Gentiles. Because Jesus had says, has said, come on into the family. And when he says, you're not just a part of the family, 
You are a co-heir with me. You are a You, you, you are a core of the Father. Live it out. Get to know him, his mind, his heart, his values. And live it out in the world around us by the present time. He's our dad. We'd have family values. Pray with me.